Hello and welcome back to Dostoevsky and Russian Nihilism. Today is our second lecture talking about Nikolai Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done. And while last time I focused primarily on the artistic side of this production, sort of questioning the whole business of the ideological novel and getting frustrated with Chernyshevsky's disdain for his audience, I don't want to get bogged down in that this time around, much as it is still irksome and frustrating to me. And mostly I want to focus on the ideological side of what Chernyshevsky's trying to say. Um, and I want to do this for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, like, obviously this is going to be kind of a major look into the, the sort of radical perspective at this particular moment in the 1860s. Um, and as much as, yes, I want to look specifically at Dostoevsky's response to this ideological perspective and his response to Chernyshevsky's what is to be done in the radical ideology in general, um, I also realized as I was preparing this, this lecture that this is kind of an important one uh, insofar as this is our one chance to sort of really look at the radical ideological perspective from the inside. Um, and this is important for a number of reasons. First off, obviously, it's important to give Chernyshevsky his opportunity to say his piece. Um, you know, as much as this entire series was conceived as an opportunity to talk about Dostoevsky, like, we do need to give the radical ideologists a fair shake. Um, I realize that I am sort of, like, biased, that I am intentionally critical of this entire outlook, and that I assume this sort of criticism going in. Um, but we should definitely give Chernyshevsky his chance. This is, again, considered one of the most widely influential works of Russian literature. It certainly inspired the likes of Lenin and other sort of communist thinkers going forward. Um, Russia today is probably more in line with Chernyshevsky's thought and his mindset than it is with Dostoevsky's, as much as Dostoevsky is widely considered the greater thinker here in the West. Um, so on the one hand, yes, we need to see what makes this whole perspective compelling, what about Chernyshevsky's worldview is, is valuable and interesting, um, because it is, at the end of the day, kind of utopian, which is itself a good thing. We should be aspiring towards radical change, um, you know, new moves in the way that our social structure and government organization is, is working. Um, obviously, a lot of people have a lot of criticism about the way that the world works today. Chernyshevsky does offer an alternative, and a compelling one at that. Um, I don't think it's terribly plausible. I think that there's a lot that we can say to criticize both Chernyshevsky's vision for the world as well as whether or not humans can actually do the things that Chernyshevsky promises that they can do. Um, but still, the hope, the desire, is not a bad thing in and of itself. Um, so today I want to look at that, like what exactly makes this hope salient, important. Um, but the other side of it is, again, this is kind of a series geared towards talking about not just Dostoevsky's sort of spats and, and literary struggles with the radical and uh, ideological ideological factions of the 1860s in Russia, but it is an opportunity for us to sort of shine the spotlight on our own factionalism, our own polemicism, the polarity uh, and the polarizing between Democrats and Republicans or, you know, the progressives and conservatives, the ideologues on either side of the internet today. 
Um, as much as I have been framing Dostoevsky's, you know, world in ter- in its own terms more than I'm trying to apply it to the 21st century, um, I should stress that that was, again, part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this in the first place. Like, I don't want to make prescriptions about what the 21st century looks like or what it can do to change, uh, to change the discourse going on either online or in universities or any of that stuff. Um, this is mostly meant to be a more Foucauldian historical analysis than, and, and, you know, only applicable to our current circumstances by implication rather than prescription. But if that is, in fact, the goal, like, if that's part of what should be in the back of all of our minds as we look at the Russian nihilist movement here in the 1860s, um, that makes this lecture all that much more important. Because not only is this an opportunity for us to talk about what makes the ideological, you know, perspective of the radicals compelling, but it also gives us an opportunity to sort of psychoanalyze the likes of Chernyshevsky to see what drives him, both not just, you know, as far as his ideas are concerned, but why these ideas specifically, what characteristics of Chernyshevsky's reasoning and Chernyshevsky's discussions apply to the way that contemporary radicals phrase their discussions as well. And I think there's a lot to talk about here. Like, obviously, in the last lecture, I found myself comparing Chernyshevsky to Ayn Rand pretty frequently, and Ayn Rand is kind of at the foundation of a lot of contemporary 20th century conservative thinking. Um, Chernyshevsky obviously does have a lot in common with Ayn Rand, but as I'm sitting here reading the second part of his book and finding, again, more parallels to Ayn Rand, I'm also seeing a lot of ways that contemporary, like, radicalism talks in the pages of this book. A lot of the methods that Chernyshevsky uses to paint his, you know, protagonists and characters in a positive light or to justify them are the same techniques that we use today to define progressive radicalism or conservative radicalism for that matter. Um, I want to sort of allow that to stand on its own merits, but here I do want to draw a little bit of attention to it. And I want to stress, like, if I am going to be making these 21st century applications, if I'm going to step beyond the bounds of Foucauldian historical analysis and instead start making prescriptions and comparisons and observations that are relevant to today, the caveat needs to be said, this is not my area of expertise. I am a literature professor and a philosophy professor. There is only so much I have to say about the sociological implications of these movements in our own world. The comparisons are necessarily limited. But again, I see some worrying parallels, and I do want to sort of draw attention to them. So with that in mind, I want to start our discussion of ideology with perhaps the most obvious component of Chernyshevsky's ideological aesthetic, for lack of a better term. And that is that there's this clear binary division between Chernyshevsky's people, his allies, his cohorts, the, the good people, as they seem to be described here, and everybody else. Um, like, this is a really obvious dichotomy here in what is to be done. It is something that you find in Ayn Rand all the time. Like, in The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, she very clearly delineates between, like, Howard Rourke and these, you know, ideologically motivated captains of industry versus the sort of bureaucrats and, and critics and forces of populism that are keeping them down. Like, there are very clear-cut heroes and villains in the likes of Ayn Rand. Here in Chernyshevsky, we have the likes of very clear-cut heroes, but villains are a more complicated business. 
Um, but nonetheless, it is stressed by Chernyshevsky in the introduction and throughout that there is not only a difference between the good people and the not good people, the average run of people, the people who are sort of standing in the way of the good people, who are in some cases keeping them down, like Chernyshevsky is pretty grumpy about, especially like the romantically minded or aesthetically minded, or the perspicacious reader even in some cases is kind of an enemy of Chernyshevsky's. Um, people with these high-minded tastes are, as Chernyshevsky frames them, villains. They are misinterpreting what Chernyshevsky is trying to say. Um, and he does have this kind of open defiance and open disrespect for them. But equally significant is the fact that all of his characters are earmarked as being heroic in various ways. Um, Lopukov, Vera Petrovna, um, and especially Rakhmatov, all like in... Uh, Kursanov, for that matter, all of these characters are portrayed as being basically different degrees or, or different dimensions of this goodness, this basic decency and practicality that characterizes and defines the young radical intellectual as Chernyshevsky sees it. These are his people. And it's noteworthy that here in the second part, Chernyshevsky actually introduces himself as part of this group, like he becomes a character. The narrator is now in the same social circles as uh, Vera Pavlovna, as, as uh, Lopukov and, and Kursanov and, and Rakhmatov. Um, these are all in the same group. And Chernyshevsky generally justifies his characterization of characters even as dramatic as Rakhmatov with saying things like, I know people like this. You may laugh at these characterizations, you may think that they're overblown, but I have met these people, I have spent time with these people. They are, in fact, realistic portrayals of the way that these new good people tend to be. Um... And for that matter, like, as much as this sort of factionalism, this, this sort of open up us versus them mentality that Chernyshevsky is, is introducing here, as much as it is sort of like mostly in the backfield, it's, it's in the implications of what he says in the introduction and what the narrator sort of drops as hints here and there, um, we should stress that it isn't just reserved to that. Like, there's actual ideological discussion of what the difference is between these good people and the not-so-good people. Um, one of the things that Chernyshevsky is obviously doing to sort of communicate his ideals sort of directly is in the dreams of Vera Pavlovna. Um, like, for this section today, we, we saw not just the second dream, but also the third dream, both of which are very important for understanding Vera Pavlovna's psychology, as well as sort of revealing greater dimensions of the ideology that Chernyshevsky is working with. Um, and I know for a fact, like Vera Pavlovna's fourth dream, which is, if I'm not mistaken, what the next section largely opens with, um, this is huge. Like, this is the utopian vision uh, of the world that Chernyshevsky very much wants to get across. And Vera Pavlovna's fourth dream has frequently been, like, anthologized or discussed apart from the rest of the book here. Like, if there is anything here that you can abstract from the rest, that's what it is. But obviously we are not at the fourth dream yet. So what I want to focus on right now is the second dream. Because if anything, it really drives home this us versus them mentality. Um, so Vera Pavlovna falls asleep, has a dream, but now we're talking about dirt. So I'm going to read like quite a bit of this, not the whole thing because it is long. Um, but just to sort of set the stage and, and give us like some of the hints of what's going on here. Um, first she sees a field. 
Her husband, that is her sweetheart, meaning Lopukov, and Alexei Petrovich are walking across it. Her sweetheart says, you want to know, Alexei Petrovich, why one kind of dirt produces wheat that's so white, tender, and pure, while another kind doesn't. Soon you'll come to understand the difference yourself. Look at the root of this fine stalk. There's dirt all around it, but it's fresh dirt. One might even say clean dirt. Smell it. It's damp and unpleasant, but it's neither moldy nor putrid. You know that in the language of the philosophy to which we both subscribe, this clean dirt is called real dirt. It's dirty, to be sure, but if you look at it carefully, you'll see that all its elements are healthy in and of themselves. They constitute dirt in this particular combination, but if the arrangement of atoms were to be slightly altered, something else would emerge. And that new substance would also be healthy, because the basic elements are sound. Where does the healthy quality of this dirt come from? Observe the condition of the field. You can see that there is ample drainage for the water. Consequently, there can be no stagnation. A little farther along, we cross to another field. Let's cross over to this other field. Let's pull up a plant and examine its root. It's also dirty. Notice it, note its character. It's not difficult to observe that this dirt is rotten. That is, it's phantasmic dirt, according to scientific terminology, says Alexei Petrovich. Indeed, its elements are in an unhealthy condition. Moreover, it's un only natural that no matter how they might be re rearranged, and whatever substances unlike dirt might emerge from these very elements, they'd still be unhealthy and rotten. Yes, says Alexei Petrovich, because the elements themselves are unhealthy. It won't be hard to discover the cause of this unhealthiness, Lopukov says. Yes, of the stagnation of these elements. We need only observe the condition of the field. You see, the water has no outlet, therefore it stagnates and putrefies. Yes, says Alexei Petrovich, the absence of movement is the absence of labor, because in an anthropological analysis, labor constitutes the fundamental form of movement which provides the basis and content of all other forms. Recreation, relaxation, amusement, enjoyment. Without labor to precede them, these other forms have no reality, and without movement there's no life, that is, no reality, because the dirt is phantasmic, putrid. Until very recently, no one knew how to restore such fields to health, but now a method has been discovered. It's called drainage. Excess water is channeled off into ditches, leaving only the required amount. And this water is kept in motion, thus the field acquires its reality. But until this method is applied, the dirt remains phantasmic, that is, stagnant. It can't produce any healthy vegetation. Meanwhile, as expected, healthy plants appear in real dirt, since it's healthy. That which was to be proved, QED, as it said in Latin. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack here, and a lot of this comes from the particular intellectual moment that we are dealing with. Um, for one thing, you'll note that Chernyshevsky is talking about dirt, and on some sense this is working literally. There is a whole lot of discussion here in the 1860s about farming techniques, um, like, if you read Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, you'll find that all the characters there are also preoccupied with things like crop rotation and the health of the soil and how an unhealthy soil can produce an unhealthy crop. My understanding is that most of what Chernyshevsky is concluding here um, is kind of nonsense. 
Like, in the 19th century, apparently there was this scholar Liebig. Uh, this is who Katz points to. Um, like, there's a significant series of annotations in the margins throughout this section, um, where Liebig is definitely saying that, like, you need drainage in order to make the soil healthy. My understanding is it's actually much more complicated than this, that it has to do with what crops you are regularly planting. So using the same crops over and over, like overplanting corn and doing that, like, year after year after year is also bad for the soil, and thus requires, like, complicated fertilizer with, you know, other nutrients to sort of make that crop more healthy and more consistently valuable like this is why crop rotation is actually a much healthier uh, way of, of planting crops again not my area of expertise not my you know not my my realm of knowledge talk to a farmer if you really do want expertise on this matter but notice that this was a major talking point in the 1860s and just as Bazarov back in Fathers and Sons is interested in chemistry and science, so is Chernyshevsky basically importing practical scientific methodology from the 1860s into his own sort of reasoning and his own explanation. But as much as this is about dirt, it is also about revolution. Um, this is something else that Katz and Wagner in, in my edition are very much pointing to. Like, they literally have... A, uh, a footnote towards the end of what I was reading where I was talking about drainage. Um, it is pointed out in, in a footnote, an allegory for revolution. In the Aesopian language employed during this period to avoid Tsarist censorship, Russian radicals referred to mechanical processes such as drainage to indicate revolutionary means of change and chemical processes to signify evolutionary, evolutionary change. Thus, Chernyshevsky's emphasis on drainage rather than on chemical improvement indicates his advocacy of revolution. Now again, we're dealing with complicated agricultural ideas, but it's worth noting that at least for Katz and Wagner, this is also symbolic for social change. And the fact that Chernyshevsky is prioritizing the drainage, the movement of water through the soil, and especially explicitly comparing this to labor. Yes, the absence of movement is the absence of labor, says Alexei Petrovich, because in an anthropological analysis, labor constitutes the fundamental form of movement which provides the basis and content of all other forms. We are suggesting that the reason why Chernyshevsky is prioritizing drainage is less a matter of agricultural technique and more an indication that labor, effort, revolution, change needs to occur. We need to wipe out the old form of government and introduce the new form of government. The reason why plants are growing up sickly and deformed and, you know, moldy and disgusting is because of phantasmic soil, ugly, disgusting soil, which is because it needs to be drained. The czarist structure, the old bureaucracy, this is what is holding the Russian people back. And this is all said in code to avoid czarist censorship. Which, again, Chernyshevsky's novel is very aggressively antagonistic by 1860s standards. Like, it is a minor miracle that this book managed to get by Russian censors. And again, having read the introduction here... It is a straight-up miracle. 
Like, Chernyshevsky apparently wrote a decent amount of what is to be done in prison. It was, in fact, passed through, like, the prison because of the, like, lackadaisical censors not, you know, bothering to check to see what Chernyshevsky was writing. And then apparently, like, the censor who was responsible for looking it over, like, left it on a carriage or something and then just passed it, like, accidentally. The whole thing is just a comedy of errors. The fact that this thing made it to print is ridiculous. Like, there are supposed to be checks in place to prevent this from happening in Russian society, whether, you know, for the better, for better or worse. It is truly a revolutionary work on that level. And I don't want to, you know, downplay that. Chernyshevsky is not just doing something daring here. He is doing something daring with no expectation of it ever actually getting past the censors. And it does for pure chance. And Chernyshevsky will go to jail for it, and Chernyshevsky will never come back for it. Like, this is his magnum opus by definition, because he's not going to get another shot. This was already too much for the Russian censors. And again, I want to stress, like, we've been talking about sort of the three factions here. Dostoevsky more on the conservative, uh, like, Slavophile side of the discussion. Chernyshevsky as a kind of moderate radical who is prescribing a sort of ideological utopianism based on the ideas of Fourier and social change. But this is to be dwarfed by the likes of... Uh, Pisarev and and the truly radical intellectuals who are at the end of the day nihilists who are in fact destroying everything around them like Bazarov is talking about and not introducing something to its place in some sense and I want to kind of stress this drive this point home in some ways Chernyshevsky's plan of social change and utopian outlook is more offensive to the Tsar and to the Russian authorities than the nihilists who do not have a plan. Because Chernyshevsky is prescribing change where the nihilists really aren't. The nihilists are, at the end of the day, abiding by Tsarist conventions and censorship conventions because they don't have all of the intellectual training, all of the, the sort of ideological baggage that Chernyshevsky brings along. And this is kind of absurd when you think about it. Like, it is going to be the truly radical nihilists who do create major social upheaval here in the 1860s. It's going to be this faction, if we can call it a faction at all, who tries to assassinate the Tsar during this period. It is this faction that is going to be starting revolutions, causing murders, you know, causing labor strikes and factories to burn. Those people are ungoverned. They are kind of the allies of Chernyshevsky and his more rigorously intellectual and rigorously socially minded intellectuals of the time, but only sort of secondarily. Chernyshevsky wants to make social change happen in an organized way. Pisarev and his sort of faction do not have organization in mind. That makes them more dangerous, but more tolerated. And that's weird. Something that I suspect is an important lesson of social change, to be honest, but nonetheless weird. Um, but I also want to sort of look at the third dimension that Chernyshevsky is playing with here. Like, on the one hand, yes, we have the agricultural prescriptions, which may or may not be accurate even by 1860s standards. On the other hand, we have this social prescription, the, the desire to change the world and overthrow the government, even though it is kind of coded here. Um, on the third side, I want to 
kind of make it clear because it's pretty obvious that Chernyshevsky has this in mind as well. There's a parable of the sower reference here as well. Like, notice in the parable of the sower, the way that it's originally described, um, like in, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we are seeing, you know, there are going to be people who grow into healthy Christians, but it will depend on the quality of the soil where the seed of the gospel is planted. Like, I know I've talked about it in other lectures. If not, this is not, you know, terribly remarkable interpretation on my part. But the, the basic moral of the parable of the sower is that, you know, based on the soil of like the person's heart who receives the gospel, you will have either the the seed flowering and creating great fruit if it lands on healthy soil, but it will also, you know, be choked out by weeds if it's on unhealthy soil, or it won't grow at all if it lands on like the barren path. Um or if it's, you know, stuck among like the rocks or or in the more barren soil so it doesn't like take root then it'll get blasted by the sun and it'll burn out rather than survive Chernyshevsky is suggesting something very similar here with a very similar goal in mind where the parable of the sower is kind of explaining hey some people are going to listen to this and it's going to mean a lot to them and they're going to take it away and they're going to be great Christians in their own right many are not going to get the same message Chernyshevsky is suggesting that this is responsible for the like disposition and character of the Russian people as well, and of people in general. Again, Chernyshevsky is saying there's good soil and there's bad soil. And whether or not the plants that grow in that soil are good or bad depends on the quality of the soil. Where the parable of the sower is kind of making a more fatalistic gesture, like this is the way it's going to be, guys. You should help however you can, but your primary goal is to just spread the word and see, you know, what comes of it. Like, you are not responsible for whether or not a person can accept it. That is entirely dependent on their circumstances and their own hearts. Chernyshevsky is saying we need to change the character of the soil, and when we do that, more healthy plants are going to grow. And on some level, this explains where Chernyshevsky's whole ideology is coming from. Like, unlike Ayn Rand, who very much blames her villains and antagonists for their decisions, like, they should be supporters of Howard Rourke or John Galt or Hank Reardon. Um, there is something fundamentally broken or corrupt about their nature that causes them to fight this truly natural, better way of being. For Chernyshevsky, it is more understandable these are not people who are deliberately destroying the efforts of the good people these are people who are the way they are because of the circumstances they find themselves in it's not their fault and on the one hand this explains his disdain like he is very much going out of his way on multiple times to say yes you were looking for something more exciting and i gave you something exciting but it was really only a cheap trick and you should probably outgrow this or you know like you probably expect that this is going to happen but i'm going to tell you right now this is not going to happen it's not going to be exciting or you know a really important denouement no it's going to happen gradually and this is you know i'm telling you that so you do not have suspense that you do not feel connected to my novel and that you engage with it the way that i want you to Chernyshevsky is stressing this because he knows most of the people who are going to read this book are going to be brought from bad soil. They can't help but be dumb. They cannot help but be corrupt. 
they cannot help but live their lives in a way that is unproductive, that is actively interfering with the efforts of the good people. They are victims, and they are to be pitied. They are not to be patronized or condescended to. They are to be ignored as much as possible. And again, this is something that you see in a lot of radical movements and a lot of literature and, and sort of ideological discussion surrounding this sort of thing. Like this same attitude of they can't help who they are, so we just have to like move right past them is present in something like The Matrix, which then went on to, you know, inspire things like the Red Pill movement and so on like and so forth. This is very much a part of this kind of intellectualizing phenomenon. But what I also want to stress is that there is a humanness to what Chernyshevsky is talking about. Like, as much as he is saying that the, the good people are the ones who should be running society, and as more good people emerge, they will clean out the soil, bringing forth more good people, and eventually the day is coming when all of us will be good people because the soil will be properly purified, and at that point, we will have utopia. If anything, I find it kind of interesting and weird that here in the 1860s we have a new utopianism in the same vein as, like, Kant's universal history of a cosmopolitan intent or perpetual peace this idea that was common in the enlightenment that utopia is right around the corner that it is inevitable that we are on our way there something that has very much fallen out of fashion here in the 20th century Chernyshevsky believes that we are well on our way there that it is inevitable that we are coming to it and in that sense he really is an optimist but this comes at the expense of basically everyone who is in the way there is fatalism accompanying this optimism a fatalism to his utopianism um which is weird but nonetheless an important part of the 19th century outlook but what i want to sort of emphasize about chernyshevsky specifically especially in contrast to the likes of ayn rand or contemporary radicalism today is that chernyshevsky is looking at this from a social standpoint like i don't want to get to let that get lost in the discussion um when people criticize the likes of Ayn Rand, it's usually because her characters are unbelievable or they're operating in unbelievable spaces or that she is completely unaware of basic social niceties which form the foundation of our experience. Like, every conversation in an Ayn Rand novel has intellectual implications. Like, you cannot have a conversation between Peter Keating and Hank Reardon or uh, Peter Keating and Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead that doesn't essentially boil down to Peter is wrong and Howard is right and Peter is to be pitied and Howard is to be championed. Every one of their conversations is going to be a power struggle on some level. And there's something grotesque about this. Um, something unreal about it. Like, people just do not talk like that. They do not get to the core of their convictions, the heart of the matter, immediately. They've got to trust each other. They have to exchange intimacies, niceties, before they can work their way up to this kind of emotional revelation. Here in Chernyshevsky, we see much of the same thing. Like when Lopukov and Vera Pavlovna talk, yes, it is straight and to the point. Here is exactly what our ideologies are. This is why you believe what you believe, and this is why I believe what I believe, and we should get directly to the matter because there's not enough time. But at the same time, Chernyshevsky recognizes that there are matters of the heart that are more complicated than this. That while Lopukov does talk this way with his allies, with Rakhmatov and with Kursanov and with Vera Pavlovna, 
But when he talks with Maria Alexeyevna, he appreciates the fact that he has to make these social niceties. That the fact that he is, to some degree, playing this game. What's more, it's worth noting that for all of the discussion about love, which I do want to talk about a little bit later in this discussion, there is a recognition that it doesn't always play by the rules. That people aren't necessarily going to behave rationally or, you know, completely in line with this ideological phenomenon. Rachmatov calls Vera Pavlovna out on this towards the end of this reading. And for that matter, calls out Lopukhov as well. Um, they play games. They admire and appreciate each other's psychology, which in some ways is far more realistic than the likes of what you'll find in Ayn Rand. Like you are dealing with the full human being, not just the ego or the intellect or, you know, the purely rational side of their personhood. Um, on the other hand, there is something even more duplicitous even more sinister about this behavior because on some level Chernyshevsky is intellectualizing the things that make us fundamentally not intellectual. Like Lopukov correctly anticipates every one of Vera Pavlovna's movements. Again, on the one hand, recognizing that she is more than just an intellectual, rational being trying to, you know, pragmatically navigate through the interstices of life with as like much selfish rationalism as possible, um, but in fact has irrationality, doesn't make the right choices all the, all the time, has some sort of social obligation hanging over her head that needs to be accommodated. Um, it's messy, it's complicated, and I don't want to dwell too much on the abstract because we'll be getting to the more concrete later, but I want to stress that where Chernyshevsky does divide the world into the good people and the not-so-good people, he does so much more carefully than many intellectuals do. He recognizes his place in society, and that as much as he is trying to reform society, society has not been reformed just yet. More than many other writers who sort of have this intellectual bent, he appreciates the fact that the people in the way are going to be stubborn. They are not wrong, necessarily, in, except or they are to be pitied. Uh, they are wrong insofar as they do not have the right ideas, but they are not wrong insofar as they are bad. They are just brought up this way. This is not their fault in some sense. And he recognizes that you got to play by their rules. you got to play their game in order to get to what you want to do with yourself. Lopukhov and Vera Pavlovna have sort of built a new life for themselves, a life that is questioned by outsiders and interrogated by the suspicious. But it is nonetheless a life that can exist in tandem with all of the more traditional lifestyles around them. Chernyshevsky reasons that you can do this, which is something that frequently is sort of overlooked in ideological novels. There is just the sense that once the truth has been revealed, everyone is immediately going to conform, or alternatively, that like your combatants are so remarkably evil that they're never going to let this go, the way that the, that is the case in Ayn Rand. Howard Rourke must either triumph as an architect or die trying. Those are his only two options. The idea of him doing what he does while everybody judges him and questions him and refuses to allow him to succeed, and yet continues to just do his thing as a sort of separate phenomenon, in, like indifferent to what everybody else is doing, is unknown to Ayn Rand and to many other thinkers of her stripe. 
here Chernyshevsky recognizes that this is going to be a gradual process, but an inevitable one nonetheless. The other major example I kind of want to point to for this whole good people, bad people distinction, largely because, again, it's going to come up in Dostoevsky and it is a major influential scene in this book, is the scene dealing with Kryukova, the sort of reformed prostitute. Um, Kryukova is kind of like this, this woman who has given her life over to prostitution. She propositions Kursanov as he is like going about his business. And we get to see Kursanov basically dealing with her from this, again, rational selfishness mindset. Like he doesn't sleep with her despite her very, you know, aggressive propositioning but instead gives her a glimpse of this new way of life, which immediately converts her over to her to his cause. Um, I want to stress this for a couple of reasons. Again, on the one hand, this is sort of fanciful and ideologically motivated and could never actually happen in real life, something that Dostoevsky is going to be very quick to point out. Like, he uses this scene as the basis for what happens in the second part of Notes from Underground, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Um, on the other hand, I want to stress that Chernyshevsky is more careful here than most other thinkers who take on a scene like this. Um, as much as Kriukova is, you know, like, immediately converted over to Kursanov's side, notice that her conversion is incomplete. She still feels this desire, this discomfort with Kursanov. Like, she loves him, but her love for him is destructive. Her entire composition, her entire way of, her entire outlook or worldview is so rooted in the dirty soil that of Vera Pavlovna's second dream that even to love Kursanov, to want to be like him, is destructive to her. Like, she gets sick as a consequence of her time spent with him. And Chernyshevsky seems to be kind of ambivalent about exactly how to treat this. Like, the, the entire story is sort of out of place and doesn't quite resolve appropriately. Like, again, if we take this as an artistic criticism, you know, there would be a lot to criticize here. But that's not what I want to address. What instead I want to look at is the fact that for Kursanov, this is second nature. Like, he doesn't care about her especially. He's just doing what he does and this you know, the power of his character is so overwhelming for poor Kriukova, who's never been exposed to these ideas before, that she feels obligated to change even as Kursanov is sort of indifferent to that change. Kursanov is a savior for her, but she wants him to fill the savior role when all he wants to do is go about his life. It's worthwhile to note that relationship. Like, this is, again remarkable for an ideological novel. Chernyshevsky gets that these people are going to change minds, they are heroes for a reason, but that the people who interact with them are going to have a diverse set of reactions. They're not all going to be villains, they're not all going to be immediately converted, frequently they're going to fall sort of into a more complicated role. Kriukova, at the end of the day, feels the need to be with Kursanov. Like, as much as she tries to live out her life apart from Kursanov, and as much as she is more sort of practical, more rational, more healthy apart from Kursanov, that desire for him draws her to him inevitably, and when it does, she develops her disease and ultimately dies, or so we're inclined to believe, based on the fact that she just disappears from the novel at that point. 
Um, but that brings us to sort of the second big ideological discussion that I want to talk about here. Um, the feminism discussion. Because for Chernyshevsky, this is messy. Like, really messy. And actually super misogynistic. Um, the women question is something that is definitely getting talked about here in the 1860s. Like, it was getting talked about in the Petrushevsky circle back when Dostoevsky was sort of hanging out with the radical intellectuals of his day in the 1840s. Um, this is something hanging over the heads of all of Russia and all of Europe at this point. What is the new role of women in a more balanced, more, you know, egalitarian society? And, again, the responses to this vary. Like, remember Bazarov and Fathers and Sons, he very much objectifies women. Like, uh, upon meeting, you know, the love of his life or this woman who he considers very beautiful, his response is, she would look great on an anatomy table. She is a perfect human specimen. Like, on the one hand, we recognize that that's hypocritical. Like, he does fall in love with her and can't reckon with his emotions. On the other hand, there is something truly ideologically uh, consistent about the admiration from a scientific perspective without actually giving way to any emotion. But I want to stress that at no point in Fathers and Sons are women considered equals to men. That's not possible. And that's not just Turgenev. That's Turgenev correctly observing the behavior of the radical intellectuals at the time. Notice that Chernyshevsky, as much as Vera Pavlovna is his hero... Like, this is a heroine, and he even goes out of his way to say, you know, that is apparently something good for my female reader. Um, there is something admirable about, about this on his face, but that is part of his disdain. Like, there shouldn't be something admirable about, admirable about this. And the fact that he is choosing Vera Pavlovna as his heroine, rather than Lopukov or Rakhmatov or Kursanov or any of the sort of more logical candidates for the position, is probably a tactic on his part to make the novel more accessible more emotionally relatable. He is making a deliberately self-damaging artistic choice to make the novel more palatable to his intellectual adversaries or those who, you know, oppose his particular views. Vera Pavlovna is a compelling character here. I don't want to downplay that. But I want to stress that there is ambivalence about exactly what Vera, Pavlovna, Vera Pavlovna's heroism actually looks like. Like, notice that the first conversation we have between Pavlovna and Lopukov, the one that uh, Maria Alexeyevna sort of overhears as part of her test, is really, really misogynistic. So when they meet at this party and they're dancing, Vera Pavlovna asks, you know, I never expected to see you dancing. And he responds, why not? It is, is it all that hard to dance? Like, Apparently, he is not such a radical intellectual that he is unable to participate in usual social niceties. Again, that is kind of Chernyshevsky's genius here, and it extends to his heroes as well. Of course it isn't in general, but for you, of course, it is. Why is it so for me? Because I know your secret, yours and Fedya's, you hold women in contempt. Now, notice that Vera Pavlovna originally assumes that this is the case. Again... It's not quite true. Lopukov immediately corrects her. But at the same time, there is truth to it. Fedya didn't quite understand my secret. I don't hold women in contempt, but I do avoid them. Do you know why? I have a fiancé who is so jealous that she told me their secret to make me avoid them. You have a fiancé? Yes. 
What a surprise, a student yet already betrothed. Is she very pretty? Are you in love with her? Yes, she is a great beauty and I love her very much. Is she blonde or brunette? I can't answer that, it's a secret. Well, good luck to her if that's a secret, but what secret did she reveal to you which would make you avoid the society of women? Knowing that I don't like being in a bad mood, she conveyed such a secret to me that I can no longer look at any woman without getting into a bad mood, therefore I avoid women. Now, Lopukov is being cagey here. Obviously, later on, Chernyshevsky reveals that this fiancé that he is referring to is, in fact, the revolutionary cause. The fact that he is committed to this ideology of social change. This is who he is married to. And therefore, all of his comments here should be interpreted in that light. He doesn't hold women in contempt, but he is put into a bad mood every time he sees them because according to his revolutionary outlook, the injustice perpetrated on women is so distasteful and disgusting that naturally he is in a bad mood. He is committed to this fiancé, she is getting married to this fiancé, and thus it takes away his time. He has no time to spend with other women to sort of pursue relationships because he is too devoted to the cause. All of this describes Lopukov's relationship with his quote-unquote fiancé, and all of his lines about his fiancé conform to this interpretation. But notice the way he actually thinks of women when Vera Pavlovna presses him on this. How can a, You can't look at any woman without getting into a bad mood, she asks. You're quite an expert at paying compliments. How can I say it any other way? To pity means to be in a bad mood. Are we really so pitiful? Aren't you a woman, Lopukov responds. All I have to do is tell you your most intimate desire and you'll agree with me. It's a desire shared by all women. Oh, tell me, please. It is, oh, how I'd like to be a man. I have yet to meet any woman in whom I couldn't discover this most intimate desire. In the vast majority, there's no need to search for it. It expresses itself directly with no summons necessary, as soon as the woman's the least bit upset. Then you'll immediately hear something of this sort. We women are such poor creatures, or being a man isn't at all like being a woman, or even the exact words, why wasn't I born a man? And Verochka agrees. It was true. These words could indeed be heard from any woman. Now, again, this is complicated, and this is not my area of expertise. I don't consider myself like a feminist scholar or anything like this. But the obvious like criticism here is that Chernyshevsky understands women entirely in terms of their social condition. And on the one hand, it is pitiful that they are socially repressed in the way that they are, that this is sort of common knowledge in some sense. But notice that Chernyshevsky doesn't offer any room for a silver lining. Like, there are two possible interpretations of what he's saying here from a sort of philosophical, metaphysical perspective. Either women are wishing to be a man specifically because they are entirely, you know, equal to men from a natural sort of genetic or, or evolutionary standpoint, but are oppressed and therefore are willing to exchange everything they currently have for everything men have, and thus get all of the social freedom and power that comes along with it at no cost to themselves. Or alternatively, and probably more likely, Chernyshevsky considers women to be fundamentally weak. They are truly genetically inferior to men, and therefore a rat reasonable woman would always want to be a man instead.
Now again, contemporary feminism has a lot of problems with this outlook. It is incredibly reductive of women. Um, even if we take the sort of more charitable outlook where it is just social pressure that causes men or women to be miserable in this way, and therefore there is no cost to them of wanting to become a man and thus earn the privileges and benefits that those men have, that still assumes that there is no redeeming value to being a woman, that nothing about womanhood is good in and of itself. That means that on some level Vera Pavlovna is dead right when she calls out Lopukov as hating women, as being essentially, you know, holding women in contempt. In that same sense, Bazarov is actually a pretty accurate description when he is misogynistic in Fathers and Sons. Chernyshevsky considers himself to be a feminist, considers himself to be on the cause of liberating women, but it does not change the fact that throughout this novel and elsewhere, Chernyshevsky seems to hold women as being lesser beings, either by nature or by nurture, than men are. And I suspect if we were to give this book a real close looking over, that it would be the latter. That it is by nature that women are inferior to men. Chernyshevsky, whenever all of his characters get together at a big party, you'll note that the men all sit together and talk about intellectual ideas while the women mostly ignore them. That they have conversations, that some of those conversations are in fact like interesting and rational and, you know, in the same sort of utopian vein, but they do not try to keep up with the men and they often make fun of the men for being so intellectualizing. It is easy to read this as Chernyshevsky saying men are naturally superior, naturally more rational, naturally more capable. Women are by nature less interested in such things and therefore inferior. He is not patronizing about it. He thinks that there is, that it's fine that they're like this, that this is, you know, just the way that they are. There's no point in criticizing or condemning or overcoming it or marginalizing them as a consequence. Vera Pavlovna can be frivolous and also can run a successful dressmaking enterprise. Um, but this is not, you know, necessarily an indication that women should be less held in less favor in society. But it does mean that Chernyshevsky does think that women are, at the end of the day, not the primary motivation for this kind of social change. That sucks. Um, but what I want to stress here, um, what I want to kind of point out is if, in fact, all women are in this position, wanting to be a man instead would be reasonable. The 20th century feminist movement would argue very much the opposite. Being a woman should be recognized as being every bit as difficult, every bit as valuable, every bit as important as the role men play in society, it is still different for many feminists. Like, many feminists would argue that a woman's tendencies and behaviors are in fact radically different from men, and that this is a good thing. Toxic masculinity is the error that men are inclined to make. Women have no similar toxicity in most feminists' perspective. Um, and this is, again, complicated. It depends on which wave of feminists we're talking about. It depends on which particular feminist thinker we're talking about. There are feminist thinkers who think that women can do everything men can do, period, and the two are basically interchangeable, the way that Chernyshevsky generously interpreted could be understood to be saying here. More feminists, especially in the 21st century, I think, are leaning towards the feminist, or women have different powers, different virtues, different abilities than men, but that should not be, you know, 
abrogated or undermined you know the ethics of care is very much stressing that like women do make natural caretakers this should not be held in low regard like women who do become teachers or nurses or mothers should be paid and respected just as well as men who become ceos or industrialists or you know i don't know ad executives um this is where we tend to be heading nowadays. Chernyshevsky has no sense of this whatsoever. Um, and consequently, for him, women are in this kind of ambivalent and uncertain role. But if we follow what Vera Pavlovna does throughout the rest of the novel, it doesn't look good from Chernyshevsky's perspective. Like, the other major thing that connects to this that I do want to talk about is the issue of love. Because Chernyshevsky has a lot to say about love in this novel. It is, at the end of the day, a romance novel. It is about Vera Pavlovna's love first for Lopukhov and then for Kursanov. And the suggestion throughout is that love needs to be freed from some sort of, you know, anti-intellectual or irrational desire or connection. Um, this is first expressed on page 103. Um... Lopukhov kind of goes out of his way to explain this, or rather the narrator does. On page 103, we're told how sudden, how unexpected, mused Verochka, alone in her room at the end of the evening. It's the first time we've spoken together, and yet we've become so close. A half hour before, we didn't know each other at all. An hour later, we've become very close. How strange. And the narrator interjects here. No, it isn't strange at all, Verochka. People such as Lopukhov possess magic words that attract any aggrieved, offended creature. It's their fiancé who provides them with these words. But what's really strange, Verochka, though neither to you nor to me, is that you're so calm about it. Love is considered to be a disquieting emotion, but you'll fall asleep tonight like a baby, and your sleep won't be troubled or disturbed by dreams, unless you dream of happy children's games, forfeits, or catch, perhaps of dancing, also happy and carefree. This may appear strange to others, but you don't know that it's strange, while I know that it's not. Anxiety in love isn't real love. If there's any anxiety, there's, then something isn't as it should be, for love itself is happy and carefree. And all three of our major sort of voices in this character, the, the sort of most reliable people we encounter, Lopukhov, the narrator, Rachmatov, they all echo this sentiment. Love is without anxiety. It should be happy and carefree. Now, I have mixed feelings about this. Like, on the one hand, I think there is truth to what Chernyshevsky is saying. And I also don't doubt that Chernyshevsky believes what he's saying and that he has experience to back it up. Chernyshevsky was married, and Chernyshevsky's relationship with his wife is organized on roughly the same principles as Lopukhov and Vera Pavlovna's relationship. Again, in the introduction, uh, Katz and Wagner very much stress uh, that, like, this was the relationship that Chernyshevsky had with his wife, that they lived in separate rooms, they, you know, were this respectful with one another. You know, as much as the my friend business, like, really creeps me out and absolutely doesn't seem, you know, to hold up, this could be a translation issue more than it is anything else um i want to on the one hand stress that this doesn't seem realistic to me but i also want to point out that for chernyshevsky this does come from experience he does legit believe this and he does have you know actual examples to back it up here and i do see the argument like, I'm a married man. I, you know, have a positive relationship with my wife. I like to think that I have a healthy marriage. It doesn't at all 
look with like what Chernyshevsky is talking about here. But it frequently has characteristics in common. You know, I am frequently, you know, I frequently feel most at peace and intimate with my wife at the same times that we are most at ease. And I value that about our relationship that we don't feel obligated to talk to each other even if we're in the same room together, that we can read right next to each other, or that she can play a video game and I can do something else, that there is comfort to this. But that comfort is not a guarantee, not even in my relationship after we've been married for, you know, seven, eight, nine years now. Um, Chernyshevsky is saying that it is absolutely not the case, that if you feel any anxiety, then what we are reckoning with here is not love. And it is emphasized in the text in multiple ways. Like, not just explicitly here where, you know, the narrator is making it clear and sort of mansplaining it to Verochka, unfortunately, um, but also in the way that the other characters behave when confronted with anxiety and love. When Kursanov realizes that he is potentially causing a rift between Vera Pavlovna and Lopukov in their marriage, he casually extricates himself from the situation. Like, he expertly and gradually removes himself from their meetings, gradually sort starts to avoid them, but in such a way that they don't notice that it's even happening. Like, he gets himself out of the situation and figures he's just going to get over it after a certain amount of time. It's not a big deal. Likewise, when Lopukov sees that there is something more complicated going on with Vera, when Vera has her third dream and reports it to Lopukov, and Lopukov realizes that, you know, she needs something that he is not equipped to provide, Lopukov realizes, and this is ex sort of explicitly explicated by Chernyshevsky, that Pavlovna's love for him is based on the fact that he has saved her from her cellar, so to speak. The fact that Lopukov rescued her from her tyrannical mother and her unhealthy circumstances is all the re reason that Vera Pavlovna has to love him. And that this is bad. That the relationship that two people should have has no whiff of dependency or unbalance about it. That there should be no power struggle at present in a proper marriage. It should be total egalitarianism, total anxiety-free intimacy and communication, total freedom on both people's parts. Again, you know, they have separate rooms. Lopukov cannot insist on sex from Vera Pavlovna or vice versa. Like, all of this should not exist, and consequently, when he sees that this is probably what is motivating her, he starts taking steps to break it off as well. Not because he doesn't like her, in fact, this hurts him deeply, although not so much that, like, a, apparently, like, some alcohol or, you know, like, taking some opium can't fix it for at least a little while, which is its own kind of wild, radical, intellectual sort of, like, I can totally control all of my emotional feelings with the appropriate application of drugs. Not gonna get into it now, not something I definitely want to wade into because it is well out of my area of expertise. But what I want to stress is that Lopukov sees that this is not real love, and Chernyshevsky agrees with it, and Rakhmatov agrees with it, and it is objectively not real love. That's not at all how any of this works. Like, as much as, yes, I can see the value of a no-strings-attached, total freedom, totally, you know, casual, no-anxiety love, and as much as I do think that that is 
frequently a quality of the most deep, deep and intimate love. I gotta stress, love does not boil down to these binaries, not by a long shot. Um, and for Chernyshevsky to emphasize that this is not only the case, but to back it up with every one of his characters' perspectives to make it seem like there is an objective understanding of love here is, I think, really shallow and superficial. Like many other writers, I would trust far more than I trust Chernyshevsky on this one. Um, and, you know, the list is legion on this. But I want to stress that Chernyshevsky does believe this. This is a you know, categorical, like, truth for him. And it is the foundation of the whole plot. The whole book doesn't make sense unless you buy this. Because all of the actions of the characters going forward are based on this principle. Kursanov is right and noble to avoid Lopukov and Vera Pavlovna on the grounds that he is causing their love to become anxious. And likewise, Lopukov is dead right to confront Kursanov about this and to force Vera Pavlovna back into contact with Kursanov and remove himself from the situation. We have to understand if all of these characters are going to remain heroic and good the way that Chernyshevsky emphasizes to us, Lopukov, Kursanov, Vera Pavlovna, and Rakhmatov are all, by degrees, correct. Vera Pavlovna is, in fact, in love with Kursanov, not Lopukov, or else Rakhmatov and Lopukov and Kursanov are all behaving erratically and irrationally. And I want to stress... I would rather read that book, the one that isn't objectively trying to argue for love like this, the one that is, in fact, more humane with these characters, the one where they're not trying to, like, play with love like it's a chess game. Because on some level, I find this all weird and gross and reprehensible. Because if you understand it the way that we can temporary thinkers of, you know, people who understand love to be something by its very nature, you know, incomprehensible, undefinable, something fundamentally irrational. When you look at what these characters are doing, they are all making these moves without Vera Pavlovna's notice or approval. Like, her consent is not anywhere in this text. Kursanov removes himself from the situation, rightly according to Chernyshevsky, because he knows better than Vera Pavlovna and Lopukov what is going on. And then when Lopukov wrangles Kursanov back into this situation, it is because he knows better than Vera Pavlovna and Kursanov what is to be done, because he properly understands that Vera Pavlovna is truly in love with Kursanov. And then when Lopukov stages his own suicide, or commits suicide for that matter, that apparently remains an open question at this particular juncture. If that is the case, then once again, he does this because he knows better than Vera Pavlovna and Kursanov what is to be done in this case. Again, as the title would suggest. So, And all of this, you'll notice, assumes that Vera Pavlovna is not rational enough to take responsibility for her own actions and her own relationships. And that sucks. That's really screwed up. Like, I have had conversations with men and women who both have been sort of, like, co-opted into a new relationship situation because the other person in their relationship claimed to, quote, know better. And that has sucked for everyone involved. 
It sucked for the person who apparently has now been dumped because the other person knew better that they would not work together. It sucks for me trying to counsel them through this situation. Like, these, this idea that one person can just unilaterally make a decision that radically affects both people and be just dead right is just really grotesque. It's really messed up. It's really uncomfortable. And yet Chernyshevsky takes this for granted. Like, for all of the characters who, who make these sorts of movements in other great novels, it's worth noting that the outcomes and consequences tend to be mixed. Like, if a Dostoevsky character declares, I know better what is to be done about my relationship with this other person, usually the outcome is subject to a lot of interpretation. It is very ambivalent. Um, as much as, you know, Raskolnikov claims that he is not good enough for Sonia or that he knows what he is supposed to do towards the end of Crime and Punishment, he's wrong. And Dostoevsky emphasizes that he's wrong. Like, part of the drama of Crime and Punishment is figuring out whether Raskolnikov will, like, take the help that is being offered to him by Sonia, or whether he will persist in his pride and kill himself. Pride is all over this book. All of the characters are participating in it. They have that same, you know, arrogance that we saw with Bazarov in Fathers and Sons. That same satanic arrogance. Um, and yet it is praised here. It is right. It is true. It is accurate. It is objectively correct. And that, to me, just makes my skin crawl. Because that level of arrogance, when it is approved in this way, passes from the characters... Lopukov and Rakhmatov and Kursanov to the author, Chernyshevsky. And this is part of the reason why I do not trust him. And part of the reason is because, artistically speaking, you can very much make this seem compelling and back that up with the story that you are writing. None of these characters are proven wrong by Chernyshevsky because Chernyshevsky is clearly trying to prove them right. So when Lopukov deduces that Vera Pavlovna is in fact in, Kursanov, in love with Kursanov and therefore he needs to remove himself from the situation, Chernyshevsky can orchestrate it so that everyone has a happy ending nonetheless. Chernyshevsky can make it so that Lopukov does in fact feel no remorse in this situation. That he takes his tinctures of opium, takes some, you know, coffee in order to counterbalance the effects, and is right as rain, no question. Like, he doesn't even have to deal with the basic necessities of opium addiction or any of the problems that we see with chemical dependency today. All of that is not within Chernyshevsky's, you know, worldview and therefore can be successfully stricken from the record. No harm, no foul, and yet seem extremely convincing to anyone who reads it. That's part of the danger of literature is allowing someone to orchestrate events in such a way as to allow it to become an ideological novel. And I think we in the 20th century and 21st century are justly suspicious of these books as a reason. Um, like, as much as I am largely an opponent of the show-don't-tell philosophy and literature and the whole, like, CIA-influenced 1960s and beyond attitude of writers in America, I do tend to think that there is some just 
question, some just suspicion of ideological novels that go out of their way to structure the very story so that it backs up the ideology the writer is intending to convey. It can get really messy. People do take this stuff more seriously than they often do the philosophical works that spawn these ideologies. It can get really hairy. So, yeah, I'm not buying it. But what I will note again is that this does represent a certain amount of psychological awareness that, again, many ideological novels fail to represent. As much as Chernyshevsky is playing psychological games with his characters, as much as he is stacking the deck so that everyone behaves predictably and intelligibly and rationally, even within their psychological irrationality, and as much as all of that is really messed up and creepy, he is, at the end of the day, taking it into account. He is allowing for the possibility of love operating irrationally. For Vera Pavlovna to love someone for the wrong reasons, to mistake that emotion for love. He is allowing for the possibility that love changes or redirects. The fact that these characters can in fact come into conflict with one another and can sort of be at odds with one another. The fact that Kursanov and Lopukov do end up coming to a confrontation is really fascinating in my mind. Because it means that on the one hand, Chernyshevsky believes that they are doing the right thing, that they are each heroic in their own way, but also he recognizes that even if everyone behaves perfectly selfishly, perfectly rationally in this way, there can still be conflict. And that's a heck of a thing to see. Because as much as there are many utopian works out there, utopian works of literature, utopian works of philosophy or sociology, most of them tend to argue that eventually we're getting to a completely streamlined, no-conflict world. And Chernyshevsky knows that that's not true, and I respect the crap out of him for that. He recognizes that even if we do have all of this new rational foundation for our thoughts, even if we do you know, drain the soil, cleanse the conditions by which humans are, are brought up and, and sort of in which they grow, we will still have misunderstandings and miscommunications and conflicts. It's just that the world will be better able to deal with this stuff. In the same way that someone like Verter in The Sorrows of Young Verter is as much oppressed by his society as by his own psychology, Chernyshevsky is saying we are aiming for a world where psychology will still be a problem, but society will get out of its way. Where the solutions to psychological problems will be easy to conduct and will not interfere with our lives in any discernible way. And I can see an argument for that. Again, we live in the 21st century. We see people, you know, mistaking their emotions for love, getting into bad relationships, and to some degree the amount of, you know, flexibility of divorce and the, so the lack of social stigma attached to it anymore allows those people to find happiness more effectively. There are other problems associated with divorce, and yes, there are a lot of issues surrounding this topic, but nonetheless, that freedom resolves at least some of the major social ills that Chernyshevsky is observing and responding to here. Um, the other one I kind of want to point to is the whole business of economics here in Chernyshevsky. Like, we, as much of the whole second section that we read for this week is devoted to Vera Pavlovna's dress shop enterprise. Um, and it's real hard for me to pick holes in this particular discussion. 
Like, Vera Pavlovna founds this dress shop with money that, admittedly, I don't know where it comes from. Yes, there is something fanciful about this, and yes, getting investors in this day and age is a much trickier business from what I understand. She gets good women, upstanding young women, who are also very good at their job, to be her staff here at the dress shop. And then, pretty shortly after she hires them, she explains that the entire thing is, you know, mutually owned, and they all control the profits, and they will each enjoy their share of the profits, and they will decide as a group, democratically, where those profits are going to go, whether they're going to be filtered back into the paychecks, or whether they're going to give it a special amount to a certain person who is struggling under the circumstances, or whether they are going to invest it back into new materials, new locations, more people hired onto the staff, and the shop grows by leaps and bounds and is very successful and as much as on the one hand i think this is very naive and utopian it is noteworthy that no nobody like attacks the dress shop tries to buy them out it is noteworthy that none of the the you know employees end up like embezzling or, or getting selfish or biasing the way that all of the the functions work at the same time like even if that was the case even if chernyshevsky did show us those things I think the principle here is pretty solid. Like, yeah, this is how I want organizations and corporations to work in the 21st century as well. Like, I am sick and tired of seeing, you know, very hierarchically organized corporations, and I very much suspect that the top-down model has kind of lived out its usefulness. Now, admittedly, a corporation run by a committee has a bunch of problems in its own right. Like, I definitely don't want to overlook that. But I want to stress that Chernyshevsky definitely believes in this and presents a pretty compelling argument for it. Like, yes, I would like to see more actual problems being wrestled with here. Um, I would like to see the actual ramifications of failing to get a loan or failing to have enough startup capital and having to rely on somebody else or, you know, some other factor outside of their control. Maybe the dress shop fails to get a delivery in time or maybe the creditors start taking advantage of them or maybe, you know, one particular person is dissatisfied with the dress and becomes very, you know, angry about it and they lose customers for a long while like there is a frictionless utopian sort of progression going on here with julia as the primary patron and her recommending it to everybody and this being immediately successful and everybody being you know really happy and and pleased with the outcome and nobody starving nobody trying to get more money like this is kind of ridiculous but at the same time I think the reason why I'm frustrated with it has less to do with I do not believe that Chernyshevsky is right here and more to do with the fact that I want Chernyshevsky to give me a more robust description of what is going on here. I want Chernyshevsky to quit pulling his punches and actually show me the like what happens when a shop like this comes under legit fire once it is facing some real legit threats from outside. Like... I have seen indie cooperatives working on video games especially, like Supergiant Games seems to have a really healthy attitude towards the way that it treats its employees. Um, I am also well aware that Supergiant has struggled with their business model in the past, and meeting deadlines is occasionally difficult for them as a consequence of their very humane treatment of their employees. I would like to see this reflected in the way that Chernyshevsky describes this enterprise. But barring that, I have very few notes. I am not an economist. I admittedly am not familiar with the sources that Chernyshevsky is using. My understanding is we are working with that sort of Fourierist 
phylanstery model when the dress shop expands to include like basically living quarters for the women who are working there and a sort of dormitory or barracks for for the various employees which is organized again uh like egal in an egalitarian fashion like all the single women are living together and they're doing so with relative peace and prosperity nobody is upset like nobody is angry again there's a lot of questions that i have a lot of you know flourishes that i would have liked to see i would have liked to see you know the girls fighting with each other over you know silly unrelated issues because that's just a part of cohabitating with anyone like, I'm not saying, like, oh, I want to see two women fighting over a man because that's something that totally happens. I'm talking more about, like, I want to see the girls, you know, putting passive-aggressive post-it notes on the refrigerator because somebody ate somebody else's lunch or something. Like, that causes major problems. That builds over time. Um, and that is, you know, the sort of fundamental, like, human behavior that is very much missing here. In the same way that I was grumpy about not having, you know, my anarchist fish moment last time. Um, so, yeah, I am on board with this vision of the economic world. Um, I am also inclined to see Chernyshevsky as having a better sense of this, again, than most. Like, we get that whole speech earlier on in the novel about the difference between the swindlers and, and how that is different from, like, the rational selfishness that we see from the likes of Lopukov and Rakhmatov. Again, like... It is clear that, you know, Maria Alexeyevna is sort of the perfect model of the swindler. A person who is selfish, but also not fully aware of what selfishness is supposed to be. This is not enlightened selfishness. This is just greedy selfishness. A selfishness that prioritizes themselves above everyone else. And largely, at least for Chernyshevsky, seems to grow out of desperate conditions. And, you know, again, that bad soil that we've seen described elsewhere. Um... I think that there is, you know, an interesting case to be made for the difference between sort of healthy selfishness and unhealthy selfishness. Um, I also, again, have problems with characterizing everyone according to the selfishness. Like, it is neat to see him apply this to Lopukov. It's like, yeah, I feel better because I'm doing this thing that appears altruistic, but it is a feeling that I value and therefore it is for my own purposes. Um, but nonetheless, like this entire economic outlook seems plausible to me, um, or at the very least something that should be developed more either in Chernyshevsky or beyond. Um, now notice that I would also stress, I'm not sure how you get to communism from this. Like as much as, you know, again, Chernyshevsky is a major influence on Lenin, and Lenin's communism is sort of built out of this out of this kind of outlook, and again, sharing everything in common, the means of production, labor, etc. All of this does smack seriously of communism. Notice that Chernyshevsky is presenting the dress shop as successful in a capitalist environment. It is successful because it makes a good product, because the employees are happy and consequently more productive, more invested in what they are doing. I suspect that there are things that we are overlooking here or else again if this were productive presumably we'd be seeing more of them um but obviously the critics of contemporary capitalism would argue that this has much more to do with the people in power right now like maybe there is an incredibly productive incredibly effective you know cooperative that is i don't know making movies but then they get bought out by disney or warner brothers and they stop being so autonomous and so you know egalitarian and so well organized 
again, I'm not in any position to weigh in on this, not my area of expertise. But like I said, if there is any dimension of the utopian vision that Chernyshevsky has on display here that I am like 100% behind, this is it. I want to see more. I want it to be tested better. But at the same time, I think the idea here is solid. The other thing that I do want to point out before we close, though, is the last sort of ideological dimension is kind of directly related to the stuff we've already talked about, namely Chernyshevsky's philosophy of the aesthetic. Um, this is connected pretty deeply to the way that Chernyshevsky talks about his perspicacious reader. On the one hand, he seems to have more respect for the per perspicacious reader than the average person who is just picking this up and needs to be entertained with drama and salacious details and so on. This perspicacious reader is the one who is anticipating what is to come, um, who like knows what literary movements Chernyshevsky might very well employ. But you'll notice that here at the end of part two, like, Chernyshevsky kind of turns on the perspicacious reader and then expels the perspicacious reader uh, here at the end of, of chapter 3. Um, the perspicacious reader is trying to figure out why Rachmatov is in this novel, and he fails, presumably because he is expecting Rachmatov to serve the plot in some way, where Chernyshevsky pretty clearly is arguing without explicitly saying it, that Rachmatov is the purpose of the novel, not the other way around. Rachmatov is not here to serve the plot or to involve the characters in something more complicated. He is the ideal person that Chernyshevsky is trying to depict here. Rachmatov is the one-for-one -one comparison with John Galt or Howard Rourke or any number of sort of like ideologically streamlined and heroic individuals. He's described as an extraordinary man in his chapter. All of his exploits are successful, but also, like, downright heroic. Like, he distinguishes himself not just because he's coming from a relatively noble family, but because he doesn't accept any of the wealth from his noble family, chooses to live like a peasant, distinguishes himself among the peasants for his rigorous, you know, physical training and his, you know, compassionate, behavior and his like pervasively rational advice he has very strict morals for himself such that Chernyshevsky and his allies call him a rigorist and yet Chernyshevsky seems to think that this rigorist is in fact more admirable more true and faithful to these ideals and consequently a better man than all of the people who are less rigorous in their convictions and their morality um, Rachmatov is an absolutely correct voice here. Like, if Vera Pavlovna is a mere woman subject to her passions and emotions who cannot control or perceive that her love for Lopukov is misguided, and if Lopukov and Kursanov engage in these sort of petty and, uh, kind of, uh, ridiculous devices and intrigues in order to, at the end of the day, help Vera Pavlovna and help themselves, Rachmatov has no patience for any of this. Rachmatov is the ideal man as he will one day be. Totally self-motivated, totally rational, totally convicted, and an absolute demon when it comes to pursuing his ideology, even in radical or revolutionary circumstances. Rachmatov will gladly die for this cause. 
except for the fact that he won't because he's too strong, can get too many people behind him. He is the man who's going to overthrow the government here, if anyone will. Like, Lopukov is happy living within the restraints and restrictions of the world and letting this sort of happen as a groundswell movement. Rakhmatov is very much not. Like, he is going to go his own way, and anything that gets in his way, he will just break through, trample over, or just ignore as he passes along. This is tough. Like, on the one hand, he makes for a compelling character. Like, I've seen this hero before. Not necessarily in this particular way. Again, Howard Rourke seems very much modeled along the same lines as Rakhmatov. Most of Ayn Rand's protagonists are. But what I want to stress about Rakhmatov is this is what he's doing. This is the whole purpose of the novel. And as much as Chernyshevsky relegates him to a handful of chapters, he has not been here for most of the book, except in, like, veiled references and sort of sidelong commentary. It is obvious that Chernyshevsky wants us to take him away, and most people get this. Like, the cultural conversation surrounding what is to be done frequently concentrates on Rakhmatov as a character. Um, he is recognized to be the pinnacle of this radical intellectualism, this radical selfishness, this radical and rational selfishness. This is Chernyshevsky's greatest accomplishment, in some sense, or what he considers to be his greatest accomplishment. This is the hero he presents to the world as the model and paradigm for what is to come. And again, on the one hand, it is very compelling. Rakhmatov makes for a very interesting hero. His ideals, his morality, his behavior is all interesting, admirable, and something that it would be probably good to aspire to. But on the other hand, you can't talk about figures like this in literature, in philosophy, in history, without getting into the very complicated world of what these figures then go on to become. It is easy to see in Rakhmatov a kind of ubermensch in the Nietzschean strain. And again, as much as this is compelling, as much as many people have modeled their lives on this and done so productively, there is a great and terrible danger associated with this. And that is exactly what Dostoevsky is going to be taking apart. Remember that Chernyshevsky writes what is to be done in, if I'm not mistaken, 1863, Notes from Underground is a direct reaction to Chernyshevsky in 1864, and the rest of Dostoevsky's novel, novels, starting with Crime and Punishment, all address this ideal man in various ways. Like, Rakhmatov is the paradigm that Ivan Karamazov is following in The Brothers Karamazov, and we know how that turns out. Not well. Most of Dostoevsky's protagonists who do adopt this way of thinking tend to end badly. And if there is any one Dostoevsky protagonist that one-to-one -one matches Rakhmatov's character and ideals, it is Stavrogin, the main pro intellectual protagonist of Demons, the book that we're going to be talking about in a handful of weeks. And not to dabble in spoilers, he doesn't end well either. Rakhmatov is going to be the character that Dostoevsky is going to wrestle with and, like, antagonize against for many years. And he is going to be the sort of pivotal character of many people's discussions of intellectualism and both its benefits and its downfalls. I think we are 
he is certainly not the only character of the type. Heck, Gogol was kicking something around in, in Dead Souls Part 2 before he burned the manuscript. Arguably, other characters from other novels, like those of George Sand or the characters in Victor Hugo novels, are along the same lines of being ideological heroes held up as a moral exemplar for us to, you know, uh, to emulate and examine. Rachmatov is one in a long line of these heroes. But the force of his personality, the strength of his character as Chernyshevsky presents him here, makes him both incredibly compelling and also incredibly dangerous. And that's why we are going to be wrestling with him for many weeks to come in our discussions. But for now, let's leave it at that. Let's just let that be a warning more than it is an actual condemnation or, you know, in a you know, rejection of Chernyshevsky's philosophy. Again, if I were to meet a true Rachmatov as Chernyshevsky presents him, I would probably find him intimidating, but I would not assume right at the outset that this is a bad person. And I trust that they do exist in some respect. Again, Chernyshevsky assures us of as much. What I distrust is less a matter of the existence of these people as the people who aspire to emulate them without realizing what it is that makes them good. Chernyshevsky presents Rachmatov as heroic and he comes off as heroic because he has everybody else's well-being in mind even as he pursues his own selfish agenda. He does good because he wants to do good, and therefore doing good is a selfish desire of his. But this is not the same with those people who go on to do terrible things in the name of accomplishing what they will or the good of the many, while not paying attention to the sacrifices or the damage that they are doing. Rachmatov is a powerful exemplar if understood in the complete context of what Chernyshevsky is talking about. More frequently, though, it is misinterpreted and we get a Nietzschean ubermensch who can do any amount of damage to the culture around it. That is probably as close as I can get to, you know, talking about the 21st century without this getting super political and super polemicized, so I'm going to leave it there. But I think the parallels here are obvious. I think you can throw a rock in any direction on the internet and hit a self-proclaimed Rachmatov, a self-proclaimed Ubermensch, a self-proclaimed John Galt or Howard Rourke, someone who does not pay attention to the psychological effects of what he is doing because he sees that it is irrelevant to his program or his objectives. And that is a very dangerous claim to make. If there is anything that I find truly damning about Chernyshevsky's novel so far, it is the assumption that we know better than the people who we are supposedly helping. If there is anything that I find truly disgusting and off-putting, it's the way that Lopukov and Kursanov manipulate Vera Pav Pavlovna, tell her what she is thinking and what she is doing because she is frail and weak and newly in introduced to this world while they are older and wiser and therefore more knowledgeable about what is going on in her own heart. That sucks. And that is something that one should undertake only with the greatest of care. 
I find it suspicious when psychologists and therapists do it, even under the most careful conditions and the most safe environments. Let alone when somebody randomly chooses to do this because of their own self-aggrandized sense of their own knowledge. Intellectual humility is at the foundation of all of my philosophical pursuits, all of my literary pursuits, all of my ideological pursuits. It is missing from Chernyshevsky, and it is missing from Ayn Rand, and it is missing from Lenin, and it is missing from contemporary internet demagogues as well. That is not to say that it is the silver bullet that solves all of these problems, but what I will say is where I do not find it, I do not trust the people I am talking to. A Superman, a Rakhmatov, without intellectual humility is a hazard waiting to happen. As much a disaster as a hero. And that's... That's deep in my convictions. Probably because of Dostoevsky, probably because of my trust of the Bible, probably because I've been studying Socrates and Plato for so long. But that, you can't, you can't convince me otherwise on this one. Because again... To convince me otherwise would be to say intellectual humility is not worthwhile. It would be to say, trust me, I know better than you. At which point you expect me to have intellectual humility even as I reject the principle of intellectual humility altogether. It doesn't make sense. It's self-contradictory. You can't kick me out of this position. Because to do so would be to make me adopt my position. So that's as much as I want to say. Again, I've been saying this like three times. I need to stop. Um, let's call it here for today. We're going to read the rest of Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done. Finally finish. I expect we'll be spending a lot of time looking at Vera Pavlovna's fourth dream and the big final picture of what Chernyshevsky's utopian vision for Russia looks like. But I imagine we're going to have a lot more to talk about as well, both on the artistic aesthetic side and on the ideological side. So hopefully we'll be able to fuse them properly in the next lecture. And then on we will go to Dostoevsky and his criticisms of Chernyshevsky and this outlook. Um, I look forward to talking about all of that with you very soon. Hi everyone, this is Professor Kozlowski. I hope you enjoyed our lecture. Um, I just wanted to say at the end of the discussion, thank you for listening. Um, but this is a pretty small operation I've got here, and I have achieved only limited success online. Um, and so I have to ask, if you liked this lecture, share it around. Uh, talk to some people who might be interested in it, pass it along to, you know, family, friends, whoever you think might like this discussion, and maybe encourage them to work on whatever reading project we're doing together. Um, if you want to do more as far as contributing and, and helping this project along, like I am, again, just totally self-funded, I'm not making a whole lot of money doing this stuff. Um, so consider visiting my, uh, my website, professorkozlowski.wordpress.com. That's where you will find links to all of the other projects that I have engaged in online in the last few years. Um, and you should be able to connect to any other of the topics that I've discussed in case any of those interest you. Um, but also definitely consider contributing to the Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, that's really the only actual income I make on these since I don't do advertising or anything like that. Um, so any amount of money that you can contribute, even if it's only a dollar, uh, a dollar a month is, is a huge deal for me. 
Um, plus, if you do contribute to the Patreon, you get to vote on topics like the one we're probably talking about now. Um, so feel free to contribute over there. It would go a long way towards making this a more permanent fixture of my life and a, a bigger part of the time I get to spend studying and researching and talking about the stuff that I love. Um, thanks for all of your consideration. Again, like, share, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Um, and I'll talk to you again soon.